there we go. It's kind of unusual because in, in the church today in America, we really don't deal with a lot of persecution. It's pretty rare, right, to have persecution. Is it working? Okay. So, um, anyways, kind of, you know, talking about it is almost a little uh, theoretical in some ways, um, rather than something that we experience a lot in America. But it's something that we deal with persecution in other ways, sometimes um, maybe through intimidation and dealing with fear. And I think it's a topic that's important because God wants to prepare our hearts, um, like on the back of our collide shirts and our mission statement, together empowered by the Holy Spirit, we impact for eternity. You know, Isaiah is the one who was, of course, has a vision of heaven and um, he identifies with the is nation of Israel struggling and being full of sin. And when he sees God's throne, remember he says, like, I'm going to die, basically, right? He goes, I'm unclean, I'm a man of unclean lips, right? I'm full of sin. He identifies with the sin, basically, of all people around him, his friends, his family, his community. And yet, at the same time, he's willing to go and to do things and to be bold for God out of his mo motivation and care for those very people and out of his thanksgiving for what God has done in his life. And so when we read and talk about this idea of being persecuted, I hope two things um, kind of rattle around in your mind a little bit and you'll think about over this next week. And one is that you identify with the sin of people around you. Um, while we're trying to be more and more like Christ, the reality is all of us struggle. All of us struggle with something. And so at, allow what you struggle with and your own weaknesses to give you compassion for the people around you. Especially maybe those people that you struggle to be around, right? Because they are full of sin, but all of us deal with sin ourselves. And then the other thing I think just should hopefully would be healthy to have rattling around in your head at the same time is just gratitude for what God has done in your life and wanting other people to be able to experience the same freedom and gratitude that you have for getting glimpses of. So I think that's kind of the premise of the idea of blessed are the persecuted. There are people, again, who understand what it's like to live in a sinful world, understand what it's like to fall short, and at the same time have a ton of gratitude for what God has done in their life, and so they're compelled to make a difference with their life for Jesus. And so I hope tonight when you're here that, um, that those two things kind of stick with you. So we've been going over, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we've talked about a lot of stuff. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, and are peacemakers. And I'm just curious, out of all of those topics, do any of those jump out to you more than others? Have any of them kind of stuck with you? I realize it's spread out over a long period of time, so sometimes we forget things, but do any of them, uh, any of those topics, do you remember more than others? Kind of a lot there, right? Well, the one that to me jumps out to me the most is the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, just the idea that through our brokenness, God provides himself and provides healing. You know, identifying with our brokenness and understanding that God wants wholeness for us, that he has eternal promises for us, and that we can get glimpses of heaven now when we follow after Jesus and surrender things to God. 
just encourage you again, take notes tonight if you're not used to taking notes. It's a good idea. I was talking to my son about it. Of, you know, if you're not used to taking notes, think of it like an old school outline. Just very simple. Anything that jumps out to you, you just write it down. And then maybe one or two points underneath it, right? And if you write them down, it's just helpful and easy to remember. So take some notes, young man, right? So this song, how many of you are familiar with the song from Need to Breathe, Who Am I? Right? So one of my favorite songs, and the, the line that uh, I guess sort of grabs me in that, that song, you know, I'm not a great musician like Jeremiah is. He could probably sing whole songs. I literally, when it comes to a song, I remember like one line in the song. And I don't think of the title, I think of that one line, right? So in fact, if you had asked me, do I know who am I? I would have been like, uh, yeah, that sounds familiar. But if you tell me it's the song that says, you grow your roses on my barren soul, then I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, right? I love that song. So sometimes it's a line, at least for me, that uh, really grabs my attention. But when I think of this idea of being poor in spirit, I'm reminded of that song that God takes what is barren in our life and produces something amazing, something beautiful, something transformational, something eternal, something that gives life to us and to those around us. You know, this idea that without Jesus, we are captive to death, captive to sin, full of depravity, which means brokenness, sin, easily caught up in depression, right? But yet Jesus takes that brokenness that we have, that all of us struggle with, we can try and cover it up, you know, we can try to cover it up with all kinds of different things, but he takes it and he, again, he makes something valuable in our lives with it. It's the miracle touch of Jesus. So I just want to remember our mission statement. We'll be talking more about it in January especially, but uh, together, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we impact for eternity. That's one of the reasons we get together is so that we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit and so together we can encourage each other to make a difference in the lives, our own lives, but the lives of those around us too. All right, so Jesus gives this Sermon on the Mount, right? Again, he's, just as a reminder, he's talking to a crowd. This is early, early, early in his ministry. People really don't know him. They just have started to hear about him. And so they come out to figure out what's Jesus all about. It's kind of his first really at least well-known big crowd and what he does is he lays down this foundation of how he's different from everybody else. What's different about him? He doesn't really hit on things that they would have an agreement on, but he's going to hit on a bunch of things that are actually going to challenge every single one of his listeners, and they're going to have to wrestle with the idea, do I like what Jesus is saying, or is he kind of a little kooky, right? So they're struggling with what he's going to say. Even the disciples, they're going to struggle for a while with these Sermon on the Mount and these ideas. Right? Blessed are those who are persecuted. That's not exactly something they want to hear. Right? They're under persecution from the Roman government. They don't want to hear that this is actually a blessing, but they have the opportunity. They want to hear that, no, we're going to get freedom from this persecution. So he gives all of these new ideas, and he reminds them you know, kind of of two truths that he's wrestling with. One is that people are often will chase after religious things, or they chase after worldly things things, right? Very fleshly things. And the world often offers a temporary high, right? Something that is exciting for a moment, that's pleasurable for a moment, that feels good in the moment, but in the end it actually leads to incredible cost, to death of the soul, to trauma in their life, right? That's the pleasures of the world. 
what starts off as a temporary high ends up with trauma. Then you go to the religious, and they have very, very rigid boundaries, which the Jews would be very, very familiar with both of these options, right? The Romans offer the temporary high. All the desires of the flesh, right? That's the way of the Romans. And then the religious Jews, is their other example, they offer a ton of rigid boundaries, right? An exhausting, endless list of to-dos that leaves the soul rather empty and disillusioned to God rather than empowered with a personal relationship with God. So they get kind of stuck with these two examples that they're, they're living in. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, I have something better for you. Something that's going to breathe life into you. That you're going to have a powerful and personal relationship with God Almighty that's going to give you an authentic life. So a question for you to start off is, are you daring enough to be authentic before God? Because the Romans would avoid God, the way of the world. And the religious would cover up how they're really doing. Another way of avoiding it. It diff looks different. Are you ready to be authentic before God? See, Jesus came to earth to save our soul, right? To redeem us, redeem humanity, and to show us the heart of the of God and to show us the authenticity of God because the Jews grew up with this, again, very distant relationship of God. God's far off, right? He's not involved in my life. And so Jesus comes and he changes the story of faith. Where, no, now you're going to have a very personal relationship with God. That's, again, one of the things that separates Christianity from every other religion. You don't have a distant God or a dead God. You have an authentic personal interaction with God himself. All right, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, as a reminder. He says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. All right, so verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's interesting. Jesus starts his sermon the same way that he ends this. Very, very, very short sermon. Right, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he ends it with, Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, living rightly for theirs is the kingdom of heaven you know and if you think about it how he begins his sermon on the mount and how he ends his sermon on the mount is the christian story in a lot of ways for our lives right blessed are those who understand that they are broken and poor in spirit and repent and give their life to god for they will receive the kingdom of heaven and get to spend eternity with Jesus. 
Likewise, at the end of their life, hopefully, blessed are the persecuted because of their righteousness, for living rightly. Blessed are those who are persecuted, who stand out. For they shall receive a reward in heaven for all of eternity, for living rightly. Do you see the connection? Right? And, he, and at the end, in the beginning of his sermon, he sandwiches in between with all these other really key attributes. But both understanding your own brokenness before God and how that leads you into righteousness as a follower of Christ also then therefore in the end leads you to reward some in this life with some glimpses, but also in eternity to come. Right? So he, he gives both of these great examples. Right? The broken, they receive healing and salvation and they receive a covenant with God for eternity. Right? God, Jesus essentially creates an oath with people who repent to them. That's unbreakable. That he will stand in the gap for them and stand before the Father for them. That they begin living a new life full of grace and mercy. I want to read a good example. This is probably one of the, at least in my opinion, one of the best examples of, in the Bible of being persecuted and kind of what it can look like. Of course, this is at their time. In our time, it, you know, again, it's going to look differently in our culture when you're in your schools. But here's what it says, verse 17. We're in Acts chapter 5. You want to turn there? Acts chapter 5, verse 17. So this is after... Um, the after the you know after Jesus' ascension, of course, this is after Pentecost, the receiving of the Holy Spirit. They form a new council as far as the leaders of the church. Ananias and Sapphira had just tried to deceive the Holy Spirit and failed miserably. And it picks up. It says, but verse seventeen it says, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy. Okay, they're jealous because Peter and James and John and all the rest of the disciples are going around Jerusalem sharing the good news of Jesus and they're becoming very popular. They're jealous of their popularity and their growing power. They thought they ended the story of Jesus with the execution of Jesus, right? They're very upset about this. Because the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people the words of this life. Or in other words, the words of Jesus' life. Okay? So, first off, get it. The religious elite are what? They're jealous. Their motivation is jealousy. Okay? And not a healthy kind of jealousy. Why are they jealous? Yeah, they're gaining popularity, momentum, right? It's against their cause. They're taking away influence that the high priests and the Pharisees have. Because if you remember, Jesus and the John the Baptist did not exactly get along with the Pharisees very well. And all of their religious establishment and their 600 and some laws, right? And instead, they're gaining popularity among the people. 
right? And if you read the previous section in Acts, the reason they're gaining popularity is because of signs, of wonders, of healings, of miracles, and of evil spirits being driven out. The miracle work of God is blessing the disciples in the growing church while the Pharisees have none of those things happen. Right? So this huge crowd is following the disciples because they get experience the rule and the reign of God through these miracles. And so the religious elite get an assembly and throw these fellas off into prison. Okay? Continue in verse 21. And it says, something it up. Sorry, I can't go scan over here. All right, verse 21. It says, And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened, then we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and said, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. All right, they're afraid of people going to freak out on them here. Says, and when they had brought them, they sent them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in the name, yet here you have been filled you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Right? Okay, so again, they're stunned. First of all, the disciples are not in prison and they don't know how they got out. What's interesting is the high priest doesn't address how they got out. He avoids that miraculous escape. Doesn't even question it. Right? They're further stunned that they are not in hiding, but where are they? In the open. And teaching where? In the temple. Yes. So think about it in this regard. If someone escapes prison, what do they normally do? Run or hide? Why do they run or hide? And why don't they want to get caught again? Yeah. Because they are probably guilty and have something to hide for, most likely. Right? Here in this case, they escape prison and they go to the temple. That'd be like if you were in America, you escape prison and you go and you get in Times Square today. And you get on TV and national television and start preaching a sermon. You're not hiding if you're in Times Square. In public, making a public speech, correct? They are in the temple in Jerusalem. It is the center of Jerusalem. There is not a more public place anywhere in that part of the world than the temple in Jerusalem. Probably the next most public place would be like in Rome itself. Okay, this is a very, very public place. They're not hiding. They are boldly going out and presenting the message in the most public place possible in the known world. On the temple grounds in Jerusalem. While the Pharisees, the ones who own, kind of, control the temple, 
are, are, are like literally standing right there, you know, in that area. That's where they meet. So he, and he tells them, why don't you stop teaching about his name? We don't even want to hear this name of Jesus ever again. He doesn't even want to say the name of Jesus when he confronts them. They don't want to even hear the name. They thought they got rid of Jesus. They thought this thing was over. Right? Have you ever run across somebody who can't stand the name of Jesus? You will. You will. You will run across somebody who cannot stand the name of Jesus. Who freak out. Who get very, very angry. Unexplainably. So. If you deal with somebody who can't stand the name of Jesus, you need to understand you're dealing with spiritual warfare. And that person can't stand the name of Jesus because of what it represents. And they are very, very, very highly likely under demonic or evil influence. And that is why they can't stand the name of Jesus. So here you have the Pharisees that can't stand the name of Jesus so much that they don't even want to mention it themselves when they're trying to talk about them talking about Jesus without mentioning his name. I mean, you see how ridiculous that is? It's like having a discussion without mentioning the topic of the discussion because you're so upset about the topic of the discussion. It's bonkers. And yet here they are so angry about the name of Jesus, so influenced by the realm of Satan that they literally won't mention the name of Jesus. Most of the Pharisees, not all of them. At least the high priests here in this case. You will run across people in your life that hate the name of Jesus so much they do not ever want to hear it. They are so opposed to it. You have to understand that there is simply a lot of spiritual warfare involved, and if that's the case. I had a coworker up at the airport uh, when I was working up there years ago. He's a big BMX biker actually here in town, and he is a part of Hell's Angels, or trying to be a part of Hell's Angels. And he gets very, very angry anytime somebody mentions Jesus' name. It's very opposed, very uneasy, very uncomfortable. Sometimes it's really uncomfortable with it. Physically uncomfortable, moving around all over the place. Right, verse 28, the disciple says, we are not guilty of Jesus' blood. Or the Pharisees, I should say this, sorry. We're not guilty of Jesus' blood, but you're trying to convince all the people that we're guilty of his blood. Right, they're very uneasy. They're trying to say, yeah, we're not guilty of his blood, right? We didn't kill him. Trying to get out of it, they're... On uneasy ground. So they have this confrontation. All right, verse 29. It says that Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Right? The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed. Right? Now he, Peter just blatantly says it out, right? Killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel for the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now, one thing you might know, not know about Jews, they don't really believe in the Holy Spirit like we do. So the, even the mention of this makes them angry as well. But a Pharisee is in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor all of the people who stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a while. Okay? Okay, so, first of all, the disciples say, listen, we got to choose. You've put us in a in kind of a, we can't cooperate with you and with God. So we're going to choose to cooperate and honor God. We cannot, 
as a Christian, be silent about Christ. Because if we are silent about Christ as a Christian, we are disobedient to Christ. The command is to tell everyone about Jesus. So if we hold our tongue because we're afraid that we might be embarrassed, we might be persecuted, we might be made fun of, then we dishonor God and are disobedient to him. So the disciples say, listen, I can't do that. I can't be silent about God. We've been commanded to speak. And so the disciples say, listen, we have to either choose to obey God or choose to obey you. And we can't do that. So we're going to choose to obey God because we can't disobey God. And so the religious leaders, again, here they freak out, right, because they want to get rid of this name Jesus except for Gamaliel. He is kind of an old, wise Pharisee. If you don't know who he is, he was considered in the time in historic documents basically the number one teacher of the day, kind of the leader of the theology. And he was also a mentor to Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. Okay? So he's got a lot of influence in that area. And basically, anybody who was going to be the high priest would need this guy's approval to be the high priest. So he was sort of like a kingpin, or if you've ever heard that term before, but he would be the one that would really have the most influence to help pick who the next high priest was going to be, along with the high priest. So he's kind of a power broker within the Pharisees. So he tells them all, basically, calm down. Let's send the disciples out. Okay? Verse 35, he continues. It says, Then he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is of the undertaking is a man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Okay? So again, he tells them all, basically, calm down. If this Jesus really is God's son, and if the disciples really are the new people of God, there's nothing you can do to stop it. But if they are fake, they're going to fade away just like every other false Jewish teacher has over the last 400 years. And there have been a lot of them in Jewish history. Verse 40 says, and when, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them afterwards and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had continued, had, that they were counted, sorry, worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus Christ is the Christ. Okay, so they, again, they follow Gamaliel's advice. And instead of executing the disciples or throwing them back into prison, they beat them. All right, interesting. And they tell them, never, ever, ever again speak the name of Jesus. So what would you do if somebody told you never to speak the name of Jesus? You ever think about that? Because there are many places in the world where Christians are told never to speak the name of Jesus again. I don't know if you know that. 
Russia has had a long history like that. Probably going to go back there again, considering how things are going there. China currently has that law. Indonesia, many places in Africa, many places in the Middle East, North Korea, Iran, many of the old Soviet states. There's a lot of Christians, lots of them, probably one in three that are told never to speak the name of Jesus again. And it's a decision they have to face because it has real consequences. In our schools, we might be told not to speak the name of Jesus, but what's the consequence? Bullying? Get your hand slapped? Don't do that anymore. Get made fun of. Right? It's interesting that the disciples, when they face persecution, humiliation of some kind, that they actually rejoiced. They weren't embarrassed about it at all. They rejoiced. They realized the connection of how Jesus started his ministry and what Jesus himself went through. That we are being an authentic Christian when we face some persecution. It's not always going to be a super, super smooth road. It's not something that we need to fear or be afraid of or shy back from. There's going to be some pushback when you're following after Jesus. Because again, we are not in a battle against flesh and blood to use Paul's phrase right in Ephesians. But we are in a battling against spiritual forces and the realm of darkness. But we have Christ on our side, so we're guaranteed to come out winners. The disciples are not afraid. They know this equation is taking place. There's more going on than just the Pharisees jealous about losing power. They're in a spiritual battle for eternity. So they're not afraid to have a little bit of humiliation in order to save a whole ton of people. Does that make sense? It's interesting. Then they go right back to the temple courts. Again. I can imagine the Pharisees, they're probably just like, seriously? How many times do I have to throw you in prison and beat you, right? Right back in the temple courts, performing miracles, going house to house. They end up picking up the heat more and more and more and get the Romans involved because they can't control it. They are losing influence every single day and it's freaking the Pharisees out and it's it wouldn't, again, freak them out if they had their mind about them. They would repent, and they would join the movement, which a few Pharisees do. Right? Nicodemus is one of them. Right? It's argued about whether or not Gamaliel does or not. But the majority of them are so blinded by evil, an evil spirit basically influencing their lives, that they fight against Christians and start murdering try to stop this movement including children think about that it's wild and if you think about jewish history from a jewish mindset this isn't necessarily in my notes but think about this just for a second it was a massive sin to execute another jew jews couldn't imagine in their history of ever doing something like that but yet, when Jesus comes along, the Pharisees lose their mind so much that they literally start executing. That's when, remember Saul going out to execute Christians? He's sent by the high priest. 
to kill Christians. They go on an execution rampage trying to kill Christians and stop this thing. It's driven by evil spirits. You understand that? There is eternal spiritual battle taking place behind the scenes that we are a part of. We need to be aware of that when we face opposition. That it's not just so-and-so being a jerk or being rude. There is something else going on. And we need to pray against it. And get others to pray against it. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word tonight. And just, uh, Lord, we do thank you that we are in a place where we do not face death and execution and being torn away from our family's decisions day by day. Many Christians do that. Lord, we pray for their protection, for their courage, for their boldness, for the growth of their faith, protection over their families. Lord, we pray for our own country that we will not lose the privileges we have, but that we would continue to be able to declare the name of Jesus without these life and death consequences. Lord, I pray that we would seize the moments and the opportunities we have to share our faith with boldness in our schools, in our classrooms, with our friends, in our sports teams, Lord, in our clubs, and in all the aspects that we are involved in that we would not be shy about being identified as a Christian. Lord, that we would understand people around us are broken and that we are too. But that by your grace and your protection, we can live a righteous life and so can they. And they can be set free in the name of Jesus. So I pray you would increase our strength tonight, Lord, that we would uh, keep before us that tension of being humble, understanding our own story, and being bold for you at the same time. God, don't let us forget our place and how you invite us into your story, Lord, how you have been inviting us into your story. We want many, many of our friends to be able to come with us in this journey of redemption, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.